Uh, today we're talking about relationships, and I thought about each of these ladies up here, with most of them just one, with one bell. Uh, by themselves, it would have just sounded like some noise, but together they really made something quite beautiful, didn't they? And that's, that's how our, our, our church works. That's how the kingdom works, is that it's built on relationships, that we need each other, that when Jesus is at the center of our lives, which has been the concept of this whole series, that he should be the center of our relationships as well. And when we have those Christ-centered relationships, really beautiful things happen. But one thing we know about Christianity is that it is not a single pursuit. It's not something you do individually or in isolation. It's intended to be done together. And we saw a transition this last week in the book of Colossians that the Apostle Paul really went from the first half talking about who Jesus is and the wonderful truths about him. But now we get really into the application and how it really affects our lives. And as we'll see today, that there will be four uh, distinct relationships that are affected when Jesus is at the center. And the first is our relationships with one another as believers, relationships in the church. Uh, The next is our relationships at home. Uh, Another is our relationships at work or in the workplace. And then the fourth is our relationships with outsiders, those who do not believe. But all of them have Jesus at the center of what we do as Christians. So we'll be talking about those today, but let's just take a moment before we read. Uh, If you're not open to Colossians 3, open up there now, but let's pray together before we read the scriptures this morning. So Lord, we do just pray for this message and and pray for uh, these topics which are so important for all of us. This is going to play out differently uh, for each and every person here as we all have different relationships with different people, but the foundation and what's consistent between all of that, Jesus, should be you. So I just pray, God, that we can develop these Christ-centered relationships that We keep you at the center of everything we do, everything that we are, including how we relate to other people. So God, I just pray that you speak to us all individually through your Holy Spirit as we apply these things to our lives. And God, just give me the right words now. Uh, Open up ears to hear what it is you have to say as we read the scripture. But God, I just pray that you bless it through your Holy Spirit. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, if you're open now to Colossians 3, we're going to actually read into uh, chapter 4, but let's start on Colossians 3, verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another, with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. And all the parents said, Amen. Children, fathers rather, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. 
Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide for your slaves what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful, and pray for us, too, that God may open a door for our message, so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Well, if you picked up by the amount of text we just read and the the concepts we have, we have a lot to unpack today. And so we're going to keep this really application-heavy, pretty high-level in many ways, but there's a lot that we're told about our relationships in this life as Christians. And, and the first we see in verses 15 through 17 is that there are specific ways we should be relating to one another as believers. And so we look first at relationships in the church. In verse 15 tells us that our relationships should be built with peace, unity, and thankfulness. And there's four themes that we find often through the scriptures when it talks about Christians being with one another. And those themes are peace, joy, unity, and thankfulness. And of course, love, but that's the given. But these are truly the building blocks of our relationships. And we're told that we are to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. And this is really addressing us individually and collectively. Now, the peace of God here is speaking specifically about our peace, our relationships with one another. It's it's many ways the absence of conflict and the idea of being united in Jesus together. But the word rule here is interesting, and it has roots in athletic language. This is really talking about ruling as though it were an umpire. That peace should be umpiring our relationships, that it would be the decider of every debate. And that's an important concept to really have as a foundation in our relationships is that we will disagree with one another. We will offend one another. But through all of that, peace should be the arbitrator. It's said in different ways by the Apostle Paul in Romans 14 that we are to make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. And this is showing our part in it, too. It's the same way in Ephesians 4, that we're to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Peace is of the utmost importance. Peace, unity, and thankfulness in Christian relationships. And this is now the seventh time we've seen the concept of thankfulness in the book of Colossians. And as we said last week, there is no such thing, at least there should not be such a thing, as a non-thankful Christian. 
that thankfulness really is the litmus test of a healthy Christian. If you know God, if you know what he's done for you and you believe it, that naturally you should be overflowing with thanksgiving, thankfulness in all things. We're called to be together in peace, in unity, as one body, and overflowing with thankfulness. We also see in verse 16, as we think about our relationships with one another, that there's this idea that we dwell on the message of Christ or the word of Christ. And the point we take away from that is Christian relationships should be centered around the word of God. And if peace is the umpire of our lives, the peace of Christ is the umpire, then we should know his rule book, so to speak. And that's what the word of God is, is it helps settle a lot of those debates in our lives when we agree on the word of God. Now, this actually is the only spot in the Bible that we see the term word of Christ or message of Christ. But for all intents and purposes, it's really synonymous with the word of God. And this continues to show us the importance of knowing the scriptures, studying the scriptures. And it says here that we are to let it dwell among us richly, which means that's to live in us, to live in a deep part in us, that we store the word of God as a treasure in our heart. And so when we gather, we don't let the word of God visit us for an hour on Sundays, but even when we're apart, we let it live in us. And our relationships should be built and centered around the word of God. And then we read about the concept of singing. It's something we did this morning. It's a beautiful moment when we can all join together in one united voice, expressing our praise of God and and really singing the truths of who he is. That what we sing should reflect what we believe. We sing, uh, we teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs or songs from the Spirit. Now, what's important in this time is that not many people could read. And so songs really became a primary vehicle to teach and to store the Word of God in your heart. It has a slightly different role, but it's the same concept today. But the biggest takeaway from this really is what we sing. It should be the content of our songs should reflect the word of God, the truths of God, and how we sing. That we're to sing with gratitude in our hearts. Our disposition as believers when we sing is very important. Because if you're singing to please yourself, you're really singing to yourself. But when you look at the greater picture and embrace the beauty of the moment that when we're singing the truths of God, when we sing in gratitude to him, we're singing to him. So the temptation at times is to make that moment into something it wasn't meant to be. It's intended to be a beautiful moment to strengthen our relationship as believers in the church as we dwell on the message of Christ. And the third is really more of an all-encompassing statement as we uh, finish up this, this idea of relationships in the church, that whatever you do, whether in word or deed, we're to do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. 
Whatever you do is exactly as it sounds. Any conversation or conduct should really represent Christ to the world. And to do things in the name of Jesus doesn't necessarily mean you're doing it for Jesus. You're doing it as Jesus. And by that, I don't mean we become Christ. It it means that we represent Christ in all the things we do. Words matter. Actions speak louder than words. And there are no throwaway moments in life. When you leave from church, what you do out there is probably more important than what you do in here. Because whether it's fair or not, the people out there are going to be judging your actions by your words. And if you profess to be a Christian, your conduct should follow. Now really, when I thought about this, it jogged my memory back to a moment uh, in high school when I played baseball. I think I was in 10th grade playing JV ball. And I was never really good at sports. Baseball is probably uh, the one I was best at, but I still spent a substantial amount of time on the bench. Uh, But I had a lot of fun, a lot of memories, but one of them I remember very clearly that one of my teammates got hit by the pitcher, and we don't know if it was intentional or not. On that pitcher then, uh, you know, in high school, they just moved the pitcher to shortstop. And so at the very next play, uh, my teammate, who's now at first, who just got hit, has an opportunity to slide into second where the pitcher who hit him is covering the base. And he very clearly slid spikes up at the pitcher to try to retaliate. And this is a pretty common dirty play in baseball, It can be done accidentally, but more often than not, it's done on purpose. And I remember my coach immediately pulled my teammate from the game. He sat on the bench, probably with me for the rest of the game. (laughs) And he didn't address that in the moment. But the very next day at practice, we did nothing but run laps the whole time. And the coach was very quiet. And he addressed that moment, and he said, what happened yesterday can never happen again. You took a moment and you made it about yourself and not about the team. And more so, when you wear this jersey, you represent more than yourself. And he explained that doing a dirty play like that now forever will make them think negatively about our town. We were representing our town when we played. And that, you know, that's the same way in Christianity. When you clothe yourselves with the virtues of Christ that we spoke about last week, you represent so much more than yourself. You represent Jesus and everything you do in word or in deed should be a healthy representation of Christ. It should be done in the name of Jesus. To bear Christ's name is both a great privilege and a great responsibility. When you call yourself a Christian, in many ways your reputation becomes Christ's reputation. Always be mindful of your conversation and your conduct as a Christian because it speaks very loudly to the world. But as we said, you're not a Christian just in church. You bring it home with you, and you know, oftentimes the hardest place to live out the Christian life is in the home. And we know that you can't always, you cannot transform form your home without Jesus. So Jesus needs to stay at the center of your home life, but it's not always easy. Maybe even this morning you woke up with a stressful morning. 
you're trying to rush the kids out the door, you're arguing with, with each other the whole way, and you park and say, take a moment, plaster on a smile, and come in here, maybe you're going to re- resume that argument after church, right? We've all had those mornings. It's hard to keep Jesus at the center. It's probably most difficult in your marriage relationships, in your uh, parent-child relationships. And so first, in verses 18 and 19, we see two very succinct sentences that that cover really high-level concepts of marriage that will keep it Christ-centered. And a marriage is pretty biblically clear that there is an order in the marriage, that there's, there's roles, in a sense, in the marriage between the husband and the wife. But these, again, when it speaks about it in, in the Bible, are pretty high-level principles. I'm not aware of any part in the Bible that tells us who should do the dishes or who should mow the lawn or who does the majority of the cooking. I believe those are things that each couple can work out for themselves. But what we read are, are two topics here of submission and of love. But where we get things wrong is when we create more rules than what were intended, so to speak. We always have to remember that marriage is intended to be a partnership first, that there is an equality between the man and the woman in the marriage, and that one does, certainly does not lord over the other. Healthy marriages are rooted in Christ, and they're built up with love and respect. So that's the foundation that really isn't spoken here but assumed is that both the husband and the wife are Christians. That's where it needs to be uh, rooted. And now, first, we see that the wives are to submit yourselves, submit themselves to the husbands, as is fitting to the Lord. Now, one important thing to un- unpack with this is that the word submit is different than the word obey that we see coming up when it talks about children and their parents, or slaves, and their masters. The husband is not to lord over the wife. They're not to uh, be critical. They're not to uh, expect things. But once again, as we'll see in the next verse, that the husband has a, a leadership that's a servant leadership to the wife. But also important here is to understand socially what's happening at the time. That in many ways, women were powerless in society, that they were subject, that they were in many ways uh, meant to obey the husbands in the, in, in the marriage. And now the gospel comes along and offers for women a newfound freedom that they hadn't had before, that the gospel tells us that there is no difference between man and woman and there's an equality that's building. And in some ways, the woman could take this new freedom and hold it over the husband's head. And so what Paul is saying here is, Submit yourself to your husband. And another way of saying that is respect your husband, as is fitting to the Lord. And you should never do anything that's contrary to what God has called you to, but respect them. It's not inferiority, but order. In the same way that a president and a vice president would work together in one platform toward one goal, so a husband and a wife should work together. And that's the first part of the equation now, is this respect and this partnership that's built. The second part, verse 19, in this husbands, is where you have to read these verses together for it to work and for it to make sense. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. 
Now, in the book of Ephesians, this is expanded much more. Ephesians 5, 21 through 33. We're not going to go over that today. I encourage you to read the whole thing because it really expounds on this idea of loving your wives. But it says very clearly in Ephesians 5, 25, that husbands are to love their wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. See, we really water down the meaning of love in our culture. We often think of love as what we can get, what we can feel. That if you love your wife, it means she makes you feel warm and fuzzy. And often that means loving your wife means just loving her more than other women. Which, by the way, is a really good start. We should be there. But it means so much more in this sense that love, this is, this is the love that's the highest word for love in the Greek, agape, which means sacrificial love. This is the love that Christ carried for the church. The love that made Jesus offer himself on the cross. It's what we're being told here is that husbands are not just to love their wives more than other women, they're to love their wives more than themselves. Love your wives. And this really puts husbands in a position of leadership, but this is servant leadership. That everything you do for your wife should be to to build them up. That you love them sacrificially. See, when you love and serve Christ first and your wife second, I believe she would naturally submit or respect you as a leader. And they work together and aren't meant to be taken independently. Now, many of you probably know the name Dr. Emerson Egricks, and he uh, put decades of time into uh, studying marriage. He's a Christian man who started with this verse and also out of Ephesians 5 and did, did thousands of hours of research to figure out what is the most fundamental need for a man and a woman in a relationship. He came down with two things. Men need to be respected. Women need to be loved. And at one point in his book, he kind of said, you know, I spent all this time researching this thing that Paul basically tells me in two succinct sentences. God knows what women and men need in marriage relationships, and it comes down to love and respect. And if each is doing their role, the problems are usually pretty minimal. But if one or both stops, or if one or both is now focusing on the deficiencies of the other, now problems start to begin. But a Christ-centered marriage is the bedrock of the home, and everything else will follow from there. And he addresses now a parent-child relationship, but this is where I think it's important for us to understand. He focuses on marriage first and parenting second. And many times in our lives, we can put the kids before marriage. Parents are no good if they're not with one another. I always put the marriage first. But what and how we parent is really important. That's where we see the next two verses, which again should be coupled together and not taken independently. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. And fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Now, the word that's used here for fathers is more of a generalized term. It's not speaking specifically of dads, but really it's it's used similar to forefathers or, or those who come before a generation. This is speaking about both parents 
and maybe even outside of the household, any, anyone really in the Christian faith, how they invest into kids. But thousands of books over the years of parenting have been written with a variety of topics, but once again, we see it summed up very succinctly. Children, obey your parents in everything. And this means everything. Things you don't understand, the things you don't agree with, because if you have Christ-centered parents, they want only the best for you, and they want to point you to the Lord. Now, I'm, I'm learning something as a parent of a three-and-a-half-year-old. Uh, you know that as people age, they often lose their hearing, but there's a phenomenon in kids that develops really called selective hearing, and they can hear what they want to hear in the moments. But this is telling us kids to obey your parents in everything because they love you more than you can ever realize, and they know more than you care to admit. They want the best. And here it gives us the motive of doing that because it pleases the Lord. This is part of your worship of God, is obeying parents. But parents do not embitter your children. And this is where we understand we're not raising robots to just blindly follow everything we say. We're not raising clones to just to be a copy of us or of our expectations. You're raising a person, and more importantly, you're raising a disciple. This is a great opportunity. Children are your greatest ministry opportunity. And so we're to continually point them to Jesus with love and with grace. You're making disciples as parents first. And this is where we don't embitter the children, but treat them as people. And embitter really means to irritate or exasperate. It means to break their spirits. And this usually plays out in two ways if you embitter your children. Either it's low self-esteem, where they think, I just can't do anything anyway. Or it's high self-assertion, which is, well, if I can't please them anyway, I'm going to do whatever I want. But almost always, if you embitter your children, it will backfire. The parent's duty is to live the gospel out to our kids, to instill it in them with all love and grace, and to keep them encouraged. To stay patient, to expect failure, and to expect it again, but continually point them back to Jesus. And these two work together once again. The more your love is made known to them, the more likely they are to obey. And the more they obey, the less likely you are to need to discipline them. And they keep building and supporting one another. All right, so move from relationships in the home now to relationships in the workplace. And, and before we get into this section, this is really uh, verses 22 all the way to verse 1 of, of chapter 4. It gives us the language of slaves and masters. And I just want to unpack this with you for a moment because this can be a real big stumbling block for people as they read the Bible because it, it almost seems at times that the Bible is condoning slavery. But I want to make a couple things very clear. The Bible never condones slavery, especially as we know it, when it's based on race or taking someone forcefully against their will. But it does address slavery because this is a really real part of society at the time. But we should also know that slavery in this, in this Roman period is much different than the slavery in our, our dark history as a country. Uh, 
there's many different kinds. In fact, a third of people were slaves at this time. Another third of people were freed slaves, and the other third were, were those who were always free or maybe owned slaves in some sense. But the most common form of slavery in this time was willful slavery. It's called debt slavery. And these are people who knowingly kind of entered a contract with someone. In today's day and age, we work and get a paycheck. This you can almost see as people who are getting a paycheck and then working off the cost of that. And so they usually worked to a certain predetermined condition and then they were set free. There are times, though, a child might inherit their parents' debt, but more often than not, when you're talking about slavery, they're working toward something, working toward freedom. It wasn't always the case, but now this is really seeing it in a high-level perspective, and that's where we look at it that we can apply it now to our lives and the workplace. In verses 20 through to 25, we see three really quick points as employees, and the first is to work with integrity that you're to obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you to curry their favor. Now, it's said that character is revealed when life gets difficult. Integrity is revealed when nobody's looking. So how you work in front of your boss is as important as when they're gone. And I've seen coworkers get fired over the years because they tried to uh, work the system, so to speak, and they thought they were getting creative by doing less work when the boss wasn't wa- uh, watching, it will almost always backfire. But what we read is that the Lord is always watching. So it's important to be working for the Lord first and work hard. We see that in verse 23. That whatever we do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord and not for human masters. Know who your real boss is. And work ethic really speaks for itself. Christians should always be the best workers in their workplace. And your work can become a testimony of your faith. You're not working for people. You're not working for paycheck. You're working for the Lord. You keep your eyes on Jesus, not on the clock. It will speak for itself over time. And then to work faithfully to whatever God has called you to do. What we read in verses 24 and 25 essentially is that no matter who you are, if you do, if you work well, you'll be rewarded by God. If you work poorly, you'll be judged. And so you have to work faithfully to whatever God has called you to do. The job isn't over until it's over, in other words. But as you work well as an employee, you can point others to Christ. The other side of this is for the employers or for the bosses. In chapter 4, verse 1, essentially you need to treat them well. Compensate them rightly and fairly. Don't take advantage of your employees, especially if you're a Christian boss. And then always remember who your boss is. That's where we see in verse 1, know that you also have a capital M master in heaven. That no matter how many people work for you, you as a boss are still working for the Lord. But here's the golden rule in work relationships. Be the employee you would want to have if you were the boss. Be the boss you'd want to have if you were the employee. And through that, you point people to Christ. The last bit we're going to unpack this morning is relationships with unbelievers, or as the scriptures call it, outsiders. These are people 
outside of the church, outside of the faith. And everything we do will be impactful to them. We talked about that earlier, how you talk, how you act. But we have to understand that nobody is born a believer. This concept is really important because at some point, if you're a Christian today, it's because someone who was in the faith built a relationship with you and they did it the right way. Everyone who does not believe in Christ is an opportunity for us as a Christian. And that's why a key item of our church is outreach, evangelism, missions, connecting others with God. A big part of living the Christ-centered life is sharing Christ with others. And the first concept we see in verses 2 through 4 is that we are to be praying. Be praying for opportunities for the gospel to be shared. And verse 2 tells us to be devoting ourselves to prayer. That means to make prayer more of the rule than the exception. That we're often feeling like we're too busy to pray, but the Christian is one who uh, should be busy in prayer. That you're awake to the opportunities around you, meaning being watchful and being thankful. Make prayer a persistent part of your life. They're also to pray that God will open the door for the message we read in verse 3, or that God will give us opportunities. Now, this is a moment where the Apostle Paul is asking for prayer from the Colossians. And he had prayed for them earlier in the letter, and now he's asking them, this is his first prayer request, is that you would open up the door for me to share the message. Now, keep in mind who this is. This is the Apostle Paul, who's probably made thousands, tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of Christians in his life up to this point, who's currently in prison for sharing the gospel. And now he's asking them to pray that he could share the gospel more. This man was relentless for the gospel. And it goes to show if he's asking for prayer, we definitely should be asking for prayer too and praying for one another that God would create opportunities. And I... He's praying that the message would be clear. Verse 4, pray that I may proclaim it clearly as it should. And in two ways we can apply that to our lives. First, don't chicken out. Right When you get the opportunity, when God opens the door, then walk through it. Share the gospel. But the second part is just knowing who you're speaking with. Asking God for discernment of how to share the gospel with people. Because every relationship is going to be different. And you have to approach things wisely. Because people have different experiences in their lives. They're going to need to hear different things in the moment. And one of the ways I uh, can end conversations very quickly on an airplane or with people is when they ask what I do for a job. I tell them I'm a pastor and... Often like, okay, look at the time, got to go, right? And so I'm trying to think creatively how I answer. Do I just tell them I work in a nonprofit or how do I keep that? But you know, there's ways when you want to share the message clearly with people, there is a bit of tact and discernment, as I said. And if you meet people and say, hi, would you like this, your sins covered with the blood of Jesus to start a conversation? It's not wrong. That's a great question to ask, but people may not understand that. So pray that we can always proclaim it clearly knowing relationally who you're talking to. What's cool about this is that the book of Colossians was written before the book of Philippians. 
And Paul gives us kind of a status of what happened after the people were praying. And where Paul was, who was in house arrest, he was watched by the palace guard, which are kind of untouchable people in this place. They lived really in the palace with the governor, but now he has access to these palace guards who come in two at a time and rotate after a number of hours, and he may see potentially thousands of different people. He's been asking people to pray for him, and now he gives a report to the Philippians of what's happening. He said, I want you to know that what happened to me, me being in prison, actually served to advance the gospel. And as a result, it's become clear to the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. In other words, the prayers worked. And that's how we see people come to Christ first is through prayer, devoting ourselves to pray for others that the gospel may be shared. And the next bit is to make every opportunity count. Verse 5, that's what we have up there as a key verse, that we are to be wise in the way you act toward outsiders and make the most of every opportunity. Now, making the most of every opportunity literally can be translated as redeeming or buying up time. What that tells us is that we have a consciousness that our time here is limited, that the opportunity you have to share the gospel with someone could be your last opportunity. And so you make every opportunity count. It's the wisdom we see reflected in the Psalms that we are to ask God to teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Know that your time is limited. So buy it back. Redeem it. Make every opportunity count. And last, uh, make every word count. It's the last verse for today. Let your conversation always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. In other words, guard your words. Use them for the right reasons. Make them purposeful, edifying, loving, thoughtful, kind. Words can inflict great damage or they can do great good. Let your conversations be full of grace and seasoned with salt, which means to make them wholesome and attractive and and digestible in a sense. You know, a stick of celery has no flavor by itself, but it's amazing if you put a pinch of salt on it. It makes it very appetizing and very digestible. Do the same thing with the truth, which can be hard at times, but season it with salt so it's easy to receive. And let that really be digested by those who are sharing it. Always make the most of every word. There's a story that I've been waiting to share just for the right time. I think today is it. Just to illustrate to you guys that this is not an easy thing. And it was, it's not easy for me either. I really wrestled through an opportunity about three months ago. And that morning, it was a Tuesday morning, I was really praying that God would open up doors, that I really have a heart. I just want to share the gospel with people. And I pray that often. And later in the day, we get a phone call. Uh, they're actually looking for Greg Donnelly. Okay, it turned out it was the dispatch. And they're looking for a chaplain to respond to a hard situation in a home. 
and they had called all of the area churches. We were like number eight or nine. And really, they were looking for a Lutheran pastor to perform last rites for a 54-year-old man who died in his bed. Very unexpectedly, very tough situation. You know, I had been praying that morning for an opportunity, and the first thing I thought in the moment is, I'm not a Lutheran pastor. I don't really know what last rites are. Maybe I'll just refer them to the Lutheran church in town here and see if Pastor Ron can do it. I was like, nope, i got to make the most of this opportunity. I have to go. And I explained to the dispatch, I'm not a Lutheran pastor. She's like, I don't think it matters. I think we just need someone there because it's really chaotic right now. There's the three kids there. And so I pull up, and it was so emotionally charged. Kids were wailing in the garage, and I find the officer on duty, and he said, thank you for being here. He'd been there for a couple hours already, and the kids were just distraught. The ex-wife was there. She was distraught. And I went up in the room where he was laying, still in his bed, where he had passed away overnight. And I still didn't know what I was going to do. But I knew I needed to be there. And I just offered a really simple message of hope, of hope in Christ, hope in eternity when you place your faith in him. And it wasn't what they were looking for, but it's what they needed. And it made a difference to them in the moment And I really didn't share much more with him. I was just there. I was available. Two days later, I get a call from the ex-wife. who says, would you be willing to speak at his memorial service? It's going to be in the basement of a restaurant. And I said, sure. Be glad to be there. I put it on my calendar. I hadn't heard anything since. And I figured it would just be a small family gathering. Uh, I had been trying to reach them and find out exactly what it was I was doing. I still didn't know an hour before the service. And so I get there, and there's about 300 people there. And I didn't know what it was I was doing. I finally just asked someone, what's going on? What am I, what? And I, I realized I had to create an order of service, and we did that. There was a musician, and the kids shared. And once again, I had an opportunity to share the hope of Jesus. It's what they were asking for as a family. But I noticed that a lot of the people here uh, were not the typical church-going people, that they seemed kind of rough around the edges, uh, they, they talked the whole first song, and it, I kind of had that teacher moment of like, if we could please be quiet, if we could please be quiet, if we just, just, you know, and through my whole prayer, they were talking, and we had the kids share, they finally, they finally quieted down, and when I spoke, I was tempted to gloss over the gospel, because I knew that they wouldn't want to receive it. There was some e- uneasiness, even when I introduced myself as a pastor, you could see people shifting and kind of not paying attention but I said, no, I've got to make the most of every opportunity and make every word count. And I gave them the gospel full of grace, seasoned with salt. And it was so quiet when I was done, you could hear a pin drop. They didn't know how to respond to it. And the most amazing thing happened. <laughs> they gave a standing ovation. <laughs> and I think it's partly because they didn't know how to respond to it. But they gave a standing ovation, and we closed with a prayer, and there was a resounding amen, like a Southern Baptist church. You know, I spoke to a lot of people there after that, and most of them said, thank you for sharing that. I really needed to hear that. And what I shared was not much more complicated than if a fifth grader would have shared the gospel message. It wasn't complicated. It wasn't complex but it's the truth they needed 
and really wanted to hear without knowing they needed it or wanted it. That's why this stuff is so important. We don't know the payoff of these moments, right? But when you pray for these opportunities, when you walk through the door that God has opened for you, and you don't just walk through the open door, you open your mouth and you share the gospel of Christ. It works. It's why we're all here today individually and collectively, and it's how the kingdom will grow in the future. But it always, always starts with prayer, knowing that it's really the Lord's work and not your own. Stay faithful to those moments. There's really one thing I want to leave with today because I know it's, it's been kind of a long sermon already. It's a pretty simple concept. If Jesus is at the center of your life, he should also be at the center of your relationships, all of your relationships. He should be at the center of our relationships as we build each other up in peace and the unity and the joy and the love of Jesus. Relationships of your home, the foundation of your marriage. It should drive you to create disciples as children. In your work, you let your work speak for itself as a testimony. And with outsiders, again, that you pray for them. You pray that God would give you the words to speak in the moments that you need to speak them. And walk through the open doors. Keep Jesus at the center of your relationships. And the kingdom of God will grow. Let's close in prayer today. God, we thank you for just the amazing uh, things you do. And God, we can't take credit for them. We know that this is all you, that you prompt hearts that you give us opportunities, that you give us words. And, and God, in all of these things, we know that relationships build your kingdom. This is so important for us to understand. So I pray that we would not be going this, at this alone as Christians, that we'd be building these relationships, connecting with one another, so we can connect others with you. So God, thank you for this, and, and thank you for these timely and truths. I just pray, God, you would apply it, uh, that we would apply it to our lives as you reveal it to us. We pray these things now in your name, Jesus. Amen.